So today we are joined by. You, you want me to say her name? She's your friend. She's been your friend forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Here we're joined by Erica, who has been a, um, a leader of, um, excuse me, <clears throat> videographers and, and people that produce video assets. And, and we went to undergraduate school together and both of us studied uh, journalism and then went out and essentially never went into that field. <laughs> but we were able to... Um, both build something out of that that connected that kind of uh, investigative mentality of I'm going to find good resources, I'm going to find good assets, I'm going to make sure that this information gets to the people that need it in, until my editor destroys it. And so that's kind of the same thing that we do in our, in our day jobs. Uh, but now we also manage the people that produce those assets. And while she claims that she's not directly connected to instructional design, I'm going to try to convince her today that she's been doing it. Um, and so... Uh, Erica, you want to explain to us um, a little bit about what you've been up to, I guess, for the last 15 years? Yes. Uh, so I work for a non-regulatory uh, education agency in K through 12. And about, let's see, 20, 2009 in education, there was a big push for essentially one-to-one -one devices, teachers who had never really touched technology, needed help with technology. Uh, where we worked, people stopped coming to training. So we tried to figure out how to best support schools. And we came up with an online professional development platform. Now, the first one was an epic fail. It did not work correctly. The content wasn't as good. And so we started from scratch, and in January 2013, we launched. Now, my part in this was more customer support initially, but we had this happen, and I'm sure you guys understand what I'm saying. Someone did a course, we were reviewing it, and it was god-awful. The script was bad, there was no measurable objectives. And that's when I started to basically take over content and implement a review system, anti-plagiarism checks, things that hadn't been done before. Um, and so that's kind of what we started. That is completely instructional design. I know. I was just about to say, I've already described. And we can we can end the in the interview right there. I've already won my argument. Uh, Erica, Erica has been doing instructional design for the better part of uh, probably almost two decades now. So uh, that's what I was hoping you would say. That's perfect. That lines up exactly with um, <laughs> what we were hoping you were going to say. And then so today, and the reason I kind of definitely wanted to pick your brain about it is the three different roles that we've played during the last couple of years where we've been working as leaders in education, or at least in, in, in the small sphere of the people that we work with. And we have been parents during a pandemic and we have been dealing with uh, the online sphere uh, before, during, and hopefully after if the pandemic actually ever stops uh, happening. And so not to get too nebulous, but I guess starting with the, 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 the what matters most to me, I guess, is the personal, right? Like you've been a parent during the pandemic. You're, I, th I think you have a kid that's right at the beginning of school and then one that's right at the end of K through 12. Or is already done? Is that right? Well, I have 
I have one. So the pandemic was very interesting for me. I had a baby that was born in May uh, 2019. Pandemic hit later that March. Daycare shut down. Our executive director was very worried about our safety. So he, we went to spring break and we never came back. And so it was a huge adjustment as a parent and as a working mom, especially without daycare with essentially an infant. And so it was all hands on deck. I would work pretty much where I'm working now. My daughter, who is now a senior, would come and help from 8 to 10. My mom would come from 10 to 2. My daughter would take over at 2 to 4. And, you know, it was just chaos. I think we can all relate to that one. Um, and, Thomas and, yeah, having ditto. A, a baby at the same time. Uh, I had junior uh, high schoolers at that time. So for me, it was difficult because they were um, in the house 24-7. My husband was quarantined for the first two weeks. And I was like, if you do not go back to work, we are not going to survive this. I cannot have all of you here all the time. It's I I can't work because, you know, I'd be in a Zoom and he would just come in with a baby. Whereas my mom would know to kind of hand back, hang back. So to come back to what you were saying in the beginning, because you said something that really struck me. Um, You said that your first iteration of your project was a total fail. And I'm interested to know why you think that is, because I feel like a lot of people who um, decide to do corporate training just jump in. And depending on the size of the corporation, like there are some that understand that there are um, andragogical and pedagogical, like, baselines that need to be met whereas other ones are like i'm just gonna make powerpoint and have somebody click through it so why do you think they that your first iteration didn't wasn't successful so it was the platform itself it was moodle based was very limited um the programmer that we had at the time and i know this with most programmers the first thing like when you have a request for us it's usually no And then they go and think about it and they usually come up with something way better and more innovative. But this one, he just kind of dug in his heels about things. And so when we rolled out to schools, it just didn't work. The content was okay, but the platform itself was so convoluted that, you know, we lost the buy-in that we had. And so when we started all over, it took a minute to gain back some trust from some of the schools that we had with that first platform. But now we're, we have about a third in the schools in Texas that use us. And so we've grown and that's all been organic mouth to mouth. Um, and we're still a very kind of small and we're not a corporation. So we really just try and help schools. That is, that's exactly um, Moodle. And I have a very, for yeah, for the podcast Ooh, listeners bad. out there, we all made painful faces when when uh, when Erica said Moodle. Yeah, you know, good good effort on bounds. It has. It's gotten yeah. much better, but ooh, about ten years ago, it was yeah, it was bad. <laughs> you know, and we it, are working on our third iteration right now, which has been in the works for a hundred years. So we are probably a year out from alpha testing. So that is different. And probably similar to what you do, in addition to the instructional design content piece, 
we're also have like a little startup. So it's, it's different. Yeah. And then the K to 12 focus is something that we don't really dive into too much. Although we do assist the, the faculty that do train the K to 12 uh, faculty. Speak for um, yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, at, at our day jobs, um, Christy is, is knee deep in K to 12, um, probably daily, although she would probably not like it to be daily. Um, Can I ask y'all a question? Sure. We do this for fun. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, um, so how does it work? Like I've always been curious since you're working with a variety of departments, a variety of people, I have learned that the best presenters rarely make the best content. And I thought that was odd when I first started. How do y'all lead people in the direction that you want them to go? What a great question, Thomas. So for me, I always relate it back to Dungeons and Dragons or games in general, right? Like you're starting an adventure, you know, somebody comes to you with a skill set, right? Like they may be um, a biologist, right? And they may have super duper experience in the field. They may have great research paper. They may not lecture as uh, dynamically as you would want uh, from a student perspective, right? And they're, they're putting people to sleep or something along those lines. And then they think, okay, great. So I've got these papers. I've got these credentials. The school hired me because they know people need to hear this because this is what the next you know, future research needs to be about. But he can't convey the information. So, you know, he's making nine minute videos or whatever, right? So as an instructional designer, you sit down with him and you say, you know, these are the pieces that you're, you're good at. So why don't you leverage some of that and lead into that and, and, and try to maybe make it digestible for the students, you know, and take, take 30 seconds in a snippet and explain some of your research and how it connects down to this and explain where you were in the learning process when you were here in this class as a student and then what was the next logical step for you beyond that? And what led that into your actual interesting parts of your career? And, and so working with the faculty members with the skills that they, they come, they come with and then filling in the, the, the pieces and some of the stuff, the, the technology of an LMS or the technology of a, just the online environment and the different publisher tools and stuff will will do a lot of that heavy lifting for these faculty members if they're just introduced to the tools. And I think a lot of the really um, the really smart faculty, the really specialized ones, the ones that have two PhDs, they, they don't spend a lot of time investigating, you know, Blackboard learns intricacies, right? They're like, I have this information, I have this knowledge, I'm going to dump it in the course and the students are going to love it. Um, Which don't. brings you back to the, the team element that is yeah. really important. I think from a developer standpoint, as you've said, I, I've worked on the developer side and they have no concept of the educational part. Um, I myself was a, design, a, a graphic designer for the longest time. So before I understood that there was actually education involved, I just thought it had to be pretty. <laughs> like, as long as it's pretty, it's great, right? No, no, that's just a small piece of it. But it, it does matter because if it's it not definitely pretty, helps. It does not. And I'm the, the, the terrible, frustrating other end of that spectrum where um, at one point for a professional development conference, I built a um, I built a presentation on making better presentations and I included no visuals. <laughs> um, and I showed it to a colleague and they were like, have, have you thought about maybe including some visual elements? And I said, no, <laughs> like, no why? I'm here to talk to them about 
you know, the, the maximum viewable distance of font size based on chair placement in a room. Like that's interesting enough without visuals. No, Thomas, no. <laughs> only uh, to so you. Yeah, you're only to me. And why was that even that interesting to me? I read way too much research for that presentation about font size and viewable distance. We'll, we'll have another podcast about that. I'm sure. <laughs> it, re- it really um, is a balance. Then, yeah. Go ahead, Thomas. It does. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, and then the, the, um, the other element of that is, uh, the pandemic. And now you've got faculty members that maybe are not the best, you know, live lecturer anyway. And now they're expected to deliver a live lecture to a studio audience and an audience at home or, or where have you, um, or also to be creating, you know, their permanent assets while they're in the room trying to deliver a live lecture. Right. So they're recording themselves or they're transmitting it live and both are, um, uh, vastly different skill sets than just delivering a live lecture or just making a video. And so that was one of the other things I wanted to pick your brain about is your SMEs and your, um, I'm going to call them instructional videographers. When they're making these assets over the last couple of years, what, what did they experience um, that was different and what, you know, what did they do to really make it a better experience? So for us, it's a little bit different since we get to basically decide what our standards are. Um, We have a rubric that we follow. So our process is, it takes a while and we use articulate storyline. So it's a lot of development, video recording. Initially, we tried to do a lot of game-based interaction and activity. And honestly, people didn't like it. I was surprised. And they kind of were like, we just want to get to the point. So we try now to do kind of both. But our process is we have a subject matter expert. Everything that we do is from school suggestions. We don't ever just create something out of the blue because that happened a lot initially too. People thought they knew exactly what schools wanted without asking schools. So we ask schools every year. I have like say 15 to 20 courses that we're going to work on. They are PowerPoint with the script in the notes, very bare boned. Uh, They go against a rubric, go back to the author, come back. Even if it's almost perfect, we always have notes. Once that's done, it goes into final editing, you know, for grammar spelling, and then it goes to design. And we give the designers complete freedom with what they want to do. Activities, um, color scheme, everything. That's really interesting to me that you said that they don't like gaming because we we were talking about gaming on a previous podcast and my husband and I talk about this all the time as well. He He's the training coordinator for law enforcement where he works. And as as a person who has had to sit through many, 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 many professional developments as a K through 12 teacher. I very much felt like, just get to the point, get to the point. I'm a busy woman. I got a lot to do. I got lesson plans, grading, all this other stuff. I don't have time to play. Okay, let's find the, let's find the magic hotspot, you know, and click. And I really think that you're bringing up a really important point, And that is knowing your audience, because it, it really does change. If you are creating something from an instructional design standpoint for, um, like say a 10th grader or a seventh grader, or even an adult in a different kind of capacity. So I I love that you brought that up because as a teacher, like, yeah, seriously, 
come on, get to the point. We don't have time for this. But how do you keep them from doing what I call the the dreaded click through? Because that was something else I was very um, always guilty of. I would click the button and just let it run and wait for the video to get, I'm not even paying attention. I'm just waiting to get to the assessment piece and okay, click, 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 and I'm done. So how do you, how do you cut that off? Or do you just accept that as part of the professional development piece? Both. We deal a lot with compliance, which we know everybody loves. (laughs) And initially we tried to update our main courses that teachers have to take every year, every three to five years, because we're a small team and we would never create anything new. And so this year we had a lot of feedback that, you know, they wanted to update it. Teachers like, you know, can you update it annually? And so we talked about, you know, is it enough to add? Because we have formative and summative assessments. They have to pass this summative assessment to get their certificate. Is it enough to just do some visuals, change the color screens? Scheme, add new questions, maybe some new activities. And the administrators said they would love that, but if it kept from more content being made, that was more important. The teachers want changes every year. And so what we decided to do is kind of a middle. Um, we're going to try and change visuals for our main courses every other year. And we're piloting that this fall and we're going to see how people respond to it. But once again, they're going to click through it. It's just kind of the nature of it, especially in compliance, but they'll have to know it enough to pass the test. So that OSHA training. Oof. <laughs> well, the first one of my first assignments was OSHA chemical safety standards. And I got these two gentlemen who are amazing and they're, they were in their late 60s, they're in their 80s now. Um, And they are both incredibly intelligent. And I got it. And I seriously needed a PhD in chemistry to understand this. And I was like, guys, there are going to be people in all walks of life. And I always tell my SMEs, sixth grade reading level, I know this is educators, but it needs to be digestible. It doesn't need to be overly worded. For me, it's different because you do have people, you know, like I said, in all walks of life taking these courses. So some of them, you know, like with our GT courses, we'll let the subject matter experts get a little crazy. But with those that everybody has to take, we want them to be able to understand it without having to Google, you know. You know, and a good, a good, um, I, I, I like that, right? Just because they can read at a PhD level, it doesn't mean they want to do that all the time, right? right? The the fastest Olympians in like, you know, sprinting, they don't go to the fridge like that, right? Like they just get up and walk <laughs> to the fridge, like give these people access to some information and let them relax into it. You, you don't have to exhaust them or impress them with, with overly wordy or overly, um, uh, overly academic. Let's go with that. So I have a, um, kind of controversial take on things that are um, mandatory or compliant based. And, and I'd love to get your, your thoughts on it, but um, why do they have to have a time training if they are able to just pass the assessment? I mean, what stops us from preventing uh, for us, like the OSHA training, um, shooter training all the all the ones that we saw every year over and over again that we did know 
Um, what's your take on just allowing teachers to just take an assessment versus going through, say, a 30 minute or an hour training? And I'm not trying to put you out of a job in any way. No. <laughs> but uh, to me, I don't understand why um, why there's a, a pushback against just allowing people to capitalize on their experience and use that training time for something, you know, above and beyond. So we, ours is online. And one of the things that we like is that a lot of times schools will start it in the summer. And so before you come back, if you've done all your training, instead of having to go to the eight hour training extravaganza, you can go to your classroom and do all the things. But I see compliance, I guess, in kind of a three part that I'll probably meander off of. But for one, schools are extremely overwhelmed. Even before the pandemic, now it's incredibly difficult. So with compliance, we have to remember um, when I started, it was like five. Now it's probably closer to 10 and some people even 20. But a lot of these courses are mandatory for a reason because they're important. It may not seem important now because after 15 years of teaching, you've taken it every year. So for schools, say they um, are just going to do the bloodborne pathogens refresher because you can do that every other year. Then you have to manage new teachers versus current teachers. You have to kind of figure out it becomes kind of unmanageable. So I always tell them the safest thing is Everyone takes everything. That's what our attorneys told us. And I think that's what they need to do. So they don't have to manage 500 people. For example, child maltreatment, that's extremely important. There's nothing we can do to make that less than an hour. Nothing. But it's, it's the law. And you don't want a new teacher coming in and getting lost in the cracks and not taking it because they thought they had taken it previously. So I think that's a lot. It's just, it's hard to manage compliance. How do you do it? There's some courses that can't be taken online. Um, and it just is, I think, extremely overwhelming for districts big and small. Yeah, right. I think, first of all, I salute you for mentioning faculty exhaustion. I am responsible in my day job for increasing, you know, course development and, and growth. And I always mention that as a, as a self-limiting you know, factor for what we're doing, that we need to remember that when we go to people any kind of confrontation or standoffishness might be because of exhaustion. And when you come to people like, Hey, you know, would you like to develop a whole bunch of stuff? And they're like, I would like you to get away from me uh, for <laughs> six to 12 months, right? Like it might not be uh, um, against online learning or anything about that. Um, just exhaustion in general. And I actually didn't, uh, sorry, answer your question. No, no. Sorry, Tom, Thomas. You're good. Um, we have formative and summative assessments we don't lock down our courses. You can go to the menu and fast forward. You have to take the summative assessment. The only one that we have that's locked down is concussion. And that's because it's required by law to be two hours. And let me tell you, they hate it because not only is it locked down, but the seat bar is locked down. So you can't fast forward. Um, we have an eight hour bus certification. I can't tell you how fun that's been for our instructional designers. Um, and it has to be eight hours. And so we try to kind of fiddle, like if they took their time, no, it is unequivocally eight hours. But other than that, we want them to be able to skip through it if they can. 
and be able to pass the assessments. The summative assessments, they're not required as far as like to pass, but it'll tell you if you got them right or wrong. So we hope if you didn't understand, you can go back through that section, but say they've taken this every year, they can fast forward it to the end. Um, and that's the same with the refresher and bloodborne pathogens. If they answer it, they skip that whole section. So Thomas and I had talked about this in a previous podcast. Basically, um, he likes to call it a placeholder for learning. So the ability to recall information that you've been taught. So if you've been taught well in previous um, in previous iterations of the training, then you guys did your job, right? And, and we have the ability to recall that information. But on the flip side, I also understand what you're saying. The legislation changes all the time. And as a teacher, you know, I'm not up to date on, on current legislation every two years. And that's why a lot of these things are mandatory. Plus, one of the other things that he brought up in a previous podcast that I think is really relevant here is sometimes you just have to do it. Like you don't want to sit and learn about this stuff, but it's stuff that is essential for your job. So as designers, we try to make it as painless as possible, but let's be real. This is the profession you chose. So you're going to have to sit through some of these trainings because they're incredibly important. And the other we thing, try and, sorry. We, we linked it back to a, um, another idea we had where we talk about the distance from the, the, event to the learner to the to the knowledge and the fact that you have the courses open for them to go back to right because some of this stuff it's compliance training and it's eight hours long but then when you need it nine months later like how much of that do you actually have access to and it, when it's like somebody walking into your office like i think my neighbor's being human trafficked right like you go back to okay well you know i took a seminar on this like i'm an expert i listened for an hour nine months ago like, no, you need to refresh your knowledge. You need to admit to the person that just walked into your office. It's been nine months since I took the training on this. Give me a second. I'm going to look to make sure that we both understand the resources that we have in place to help us through this. And then we're going to, you know, I don't want maybe maybe don't say figure it out together. But you know what I mean? We're going to we're going to get uh, we're going to get uh, going on this. Um, that, that That's one of the other things that I think always helps in, in situations where you begin to understand why compliance training was, was part of the job, right? Is to admit to the, to the person and, and don't, you don't have to berate the, the training, right? Like you, you probably paid attention to it at, at a different level than you're willing to admit when the event starts. Um, and, and, you know, perfect example at work, we had somebody fall off the building and I didn't have any training. I don't, I don't know of any training I took at work that would, answer the question of what do you do when somebody falls off the building, hits a porta potty and tears their leg open, right? Like I'm Googling the HR website, like he appears to be in distress. Um, but no, luckily there was somebody on staff that went out in their own personal time and was part of search and rescue. And he had a whole packet, a tourniquet and, and probably saved the guys, you know, leg, but it's also not, you know, the responsibility at work, but it made me think of different job sites where it is directly the responsibility of the people on that job site to have maybe a prevented that and B know exactly what to do when stuff like that does happen. Um, and then thinking about, you know, oh, you got a chemical sprayed in your face. Oh, let me run back to the other side of the factory and get the MSDS sheets. So, so yeah, the longevity of the training in their mind and access to it and then access to it during the event. And how do you make sure that, um, it, compliance training actually goes above and beyond what is, you know, mandated and what's required. 
And then I think to answer Christie's question in the most flippant way possible, the reason why uh, the stuff is the way that it is and delivered that it is, is because the delivery of the training itself is part of the regulation. And so you've got people that are forced to jump through hoops, designing the jumps for other people's hoops and saying like, oh, no, 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 this is the best way that it could be done. Like, no, this is the way that you were required to do it. Mm. But we can still ask these questions and we still should be allowed to go back and say to them, you know, this was the experience and without it, it being a confrontation to them, right? Like we understand you were mandated and required to do this, but can we talk about like what it was? So that, that's, that's the real answer is we have, to, we have to attack the legislation and work on the policies themselves. And we have to read the policies and understand them so that we know where the limitations are. Um, and then I think for a lot of people, we just um, wing it and, and circumvent things that are, are not working. And so, um, y y y you know, for instance, a, a, a teacher that knows that they have stuff that they need to do, they're going to figure out a way to do it. They're going to make, you know, their own note cards. They're going to remember the facts that they need in these situations as, as they're made aware of them above and beyond whatever the compliance training re requires. Um, it, you know, but we can't all be like teachers. It's exhausting. <laughs> Well, and we get the biggest buy-in from those that say, okay, if you do all these before school starts, you get an extra day at Thanksgiving or you get some kind of special day off or something like that. So a lot of them do that so that they can get that time back. And one thing that's kind of interesting, not as much during the pandemic, but in y'all's podcast, y'all talked about Harvey. A lot of our schools use that to make up time for teachers. So, um, it was, it was the first time that it was used in that way. And so we had some teachers that took tons of courses just to get their hours. Erica, I'm thinking back. I think I might have taken some of y'all's training. <laughs> Could I be. Know it was, I know it was articulate based and it wasn't locked down. And I remember only one or two being locked down. And when I came across those, I was like, damn it. <laughs> that's really, that's really amazing. Um, going back to like the very beginning when you were talking about developing your courses, you had mentioned that you guys use a rubric, which I think is amazing. Um, I know that Thomas has had experience being on a rubric design committee, and I personally think that the ones that we use are phenomenal for course design. Where did y'all, where did you guys pull from to kind of design your rubric and what, what did that look like? So our rubric is mostly for the content because that's something that we discovered early on that if the content wasn't good, um, if it wasn't digestible, objectives measurable, conversational, a lot of different elements, then it was going to be hard to listen to. So we didn't want it to ever be like reading a textbook. So the previous, like the, I guess the creator, the original brain who had this idea uh, she's a very, very intelligent woman. And so she was like, you know, what's the most important thing about these courses? And she developed the rubric. Um, I had some input, but mainly it was all her. And I've used it for the last 10 years. And it's basically goes through each element of the course. And there's four areas, acceptable, acceptable with work, revision, more revisions, essentially. And so when we're reviewing content, I highlight what, where they're at on this particular course. And then I go slide by slide and give them notes on what like lead in needed transition, 
What are you talking about? Don't say that. Just a lot of different things. Do you find that takes a lot of the subjectivity out of it? No, because it's just making sure that it's understandable. Like we don't tell them what to say, how our process works. Here's a subject. Here's our list of courses. Which ones do you think you can do? They send in their objectives with kind of an outline. We look at that. I'm obviously not an expert in all these fields. So I will consult districts or we have an advisory board or attorneys and say, like, is there anything missing? And then they go and create. So it's, it's a process, but we feel it's necessary or it's, it's, we're not going to be able to to determine how good it will be. Yeah. And I think a lot of instructional designers, um, uh, are going to feel the same way as far as that's, that's the ideal working environment, right? You get a project, you get to work, you get to tell the SME, more work is needed in these ways, right? It's not just a pre-delivered package. Like you said, it's not a textbook that the ID is taking and building a course out of by themselves. It needs to be this relationship and this process. And that is, um, that's wonderful to hear. The, the other thing that you said earlier that I wanted to call back in, because it, it's, it's our callback to, because it's perfect with our, with our name, Disposable Design, is the idea that you're looking back at these elements and saying, no, there's not just a, a born on date on this. There's a shelf life to these things and they need to be produced with the mindset that they need to be redone and different elements need to be looked at at different pieces of, of um, time in the future, especially with, with the legislation. That just makes it an automatic throw in the trash uh, uh, and start over when, when things are dramatically changed. Um, you know, and, and that's actually a really interesting piece as far as you're building these really nice finished products. Well, then what happens when two words in a piece of legislation changes? So how do you, how do you increase the longevity of some of your assets that you utilize, knowing that there's going to be these, these uh, uh, state-level variables that, that come with no, no prediction of, of content, but at least a prediction of um, delivery uh, schedules? So a good example is one time with the child maltreatment, it used to be called a child abuse awareness. Um, there was a, a mandate about posters having to be kids, kids level in English and Spanish. That wasn't in there. It was literally the week before school started, our busiest time. And so we just, we took it down, wrote something up very quickly. And they just put it up. So we're kind of prepared at any time, but that rarely happens. But especially with legislation, when that's going down, like our executive director sends us all the bills, what they are related to. And we kind of just look and like have our ticker about them. Like last legislative session, I really thought um, teen dating violence was going to be the next mandated course. And so I was trying to pay attention to that since it is a course that we already offer. We would probably have to take it down and make some changes. Um, and we just try and be very transparent with our schools. You know, it's it's not ready. It'll be up. We have to make changes or um, take it down for a while if they're extensive. But then things like bloodborne pathogens, it hasn't changed probably since the 90s. Like, I don't. I don't know how to make that the most interesting. We used to have a whole game, like you would get your gloves on and clean the blood spill and they hated it. So have you tried I, taking I, it to like a try not to die game? <laughs> no, uh, I've no. seen those, but no, 
just an idea. Um, <laughs> might be relevant someday. We might be limited on. Right. For like sixth graders. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it's, I mean, for teachers even, I mean, y'all wouldn't believe the comments. No, that's even get. worse. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, we, we I do. believe it. We believe you. <laughs> we believe it. Yeah. <laughs> Faculty and, and K-12 uh, teachers overlap far more than either audience would, would admit. Mm-hmm. But I feel for them because it is, I, my mom's a teacher. She takes our courses and it's, it's so overwhelming for teachers. So I try and be very understanding and to make them as painless as possible. And I look like if we're in a slow time, we have our instructional designers look at comment evaluations and start trying to address if there's any like big issues, they get stuck in an activity. Um, and then when we redo them, we take all the evaluations and we give them to the subject matter expert to to pay attention to. So we try and be very responsive to our audience and to the, the people that pay for it. But it's um, it's difficult sometimes. You know, you've actually cut through you've cut through a massive amount of work in editing and re- redoing stuff by going to the audience first and asking them what they actually need you guys to be building for the future. So if, if people ever look at y'all's work and they're like, well, you know, you could be busier, you know, like remind them that no, 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 <laughs> we have prevented disasters from ever even happening. And so do you remember the great destruction of 2017? You know, no, because there wasn't one because we prevented it by talking to teachers first. Um, sorry, this is me ranting. This is very much our soapbox here because if if you start with the audience in mind, and and I'm very much a needs assessment girl. Like if we if we actually just decided what we actually need versus throwing everything at something we have no idea, maybe we're not maybe we're not even supposed to be targeting that. How do you know if you don't start at the end, right, with the end in mind? So, yeah, it's refreshing to know that not everybody works in a reactive environment. <laughs> well, we learned from our mistakes because that's what happened. The initial platform, our um, director at the time, if a district like, requested a course or requested a feature, she would just go all into it. And then it wouldn't be used or it wouldn't be taken. So we had taken the time instead of doing something that could have been useful for everyone to do for one person, but we were trying to build the platform and, you know, be appealing to schools. Um, and then, like I said, we're working on our other iteration. It's been in the works for forever. Well, the programmers didn't take a lot of feedback from anyone, really. They just kind of went in and started building and we presented it to the schools and they were like, we don't need any of that. And so basically six months of work was out the window. Oof. So now, like, we're starting, we're barely in our baby stages, like database stage. And we met with, a, we picked advisory board, we asked, we let them volunteer. Our biggest school, our smallest schools, our medium schools, all over the state of Texas. And we addressed the issues we knew were there and went down and one by one, will this help? What do you think about this? And I asked them about the, you know redoing courses every year. You know, they they said, you know, for us, the administrators, every other year would be fine because we know nothing new would ever get created. And I think that will be helpful for teachers versus every three to five years. So the admins are very aware that it's painful and they try and make it as painless as possible. But at the same time, like we discussed earlier, their hands are tied. All right. 
So it's interesting to me that you guys started in an LMS with Moodle and then switched over to um, Articulate 360, which is, to me, it, it reminds me of PowerPoint on steroids. And for a while, I was kind of like a snob about it, like, oh, that's not real learning. But as I've gone down the journey as an instructional designer, I realize how much value there is. Yeah, it sure is how candy learning. Yeah. It, yeah. So um, can you talk a little bit about the, the transition process from Moodle to Articulate? Like, did you did you find that? Well, why? Why did you decide to go from that that all encompassing LMS to um, these module pieces? So I, I think we used Adobe Captivate with the Moodle LMS and our project manager at the time was a very smart young man. And he started looking for something to create courses and he came across Articulate Storyline. And it's interesting because with our platform, since it's created from scratch, we had to figure out how to make a player. And so we break them down. So it's like an hour long course. Each objective, we cut objective, knowledge check, knowledge check, objective, knowledge check, knowledge check. Um, And it really was learning experience we had no idea even where to start Um, and that's kind of what happened even with our technology courses we would do the same development and then we'd finally get it out and google would change a button the next day and it was completely pointless so now with those we do like a webinar style it's not as fancy but there's no other way for us to do that without taking a great amount of time for something that changes every six months. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, I used to produce modules for websites, particularly and it's Oh, my God, and you have to go right back to the drawing board every single time. Um, so Thomas knows I'm I'm an Adobe whore, for lack of better terms, I love Adobe products. But I'm curious also why you decided to go from captivate over to articulate because um, for, I, I'm, I love all of the capabilities in Captivate, but I, they don't have really good ADA compliance. So does, does that tie into your design? I mean, do you guys, I'm assuming you have to be ADA compliant. Uh, yes. I don't know if that was, I, I honestly wasn't a part of the decision that was, uh, the project manager before me. Um, but as far as ADA compliance, we spend time on that. Like we have the notes, the script on the right-hand side, but we would still have people like, we really want to close caption. It's kind of a duplication of work for us, but we, we went ahead and did it. And then for our technology courses that we just talked about, um, we upload them in Google, right? I mean, not Google, YouTube right now, and their closed captioning is not amazing. So <laughs> we're transitioning to where now with our subject matter experts, those didn't have to be scripted out because it was just like a webinar style. Now we're going to require that they are scripted out um, and they're going to have to do that so that we are basically going to treat them like our other courses. We're going to put them in storyline, but with video and going to have to sync the audio versus trying to do it in YouTube. We just, we're continuously learning and adapting and changing and trying to be responsive. And we know we are not going to ever make everybody happy. We will try, 
but there are people that are just not going to like online learning and we just do the best we can. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. For more instructional design tips, tricks, and resources, check out our website at disposabledesignpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Thomas underscore Sosby and at Ms. Zintech.